Our scripture reading today is the entire chapter of John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, that they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy filled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And we'll get right down to work this morning. Father, we posture ourselves as your kids, and we gladly acknowledge that we are your needy kids. 
Um, but maybe this morning, for some of us, the acknowledgement of need comes slowly, and it's possible even that for many of us, we have been ignoring the need or numbing it or pursuing fulfillment of that need in other people or in ourselves or other places other than through you, our Father. And so we want to confess that and ask that while we are gathered here today, Father, you would remind us of our need, that you would show us where we have been running apart from you to satisfy that need, and that you would, by your grace and through your kindness, begin to fulfill the need that we have as your kids. So I pray, Father, through your spirit, you would show us where we have been running and where we have need and where we need to open our, our hands and give that need to you. And Father, as we have done each week, we want to continue to pray for those people who are suffering incredible injustice and oppression and chaos in Ukraine. And this morning we want to pray specifically for the children of Ukraine, particularly those who have lost a parent or been orphaned altogether or um, are still in imminent danger. We pray for those without a mother to comfort them. We pray for those without a father to protect them. And we ask God in your kindness, may you please be present in power. May you be present in comfort and may you be present in peace. I pray that you would stand against the oppressor and those who would seek to do evil and that you would stand for those who cannot stand for themselves. And Father, we pray, we pray that you would provide safety and comfort and peace and restoration for the hundreds of thousands of displaced people, aliens, foreigners, strangers now wandering, looking for a home and a place to lay their head. Father, we pray that you would pro provide a home for the homeless. And Father, this morning we pray for the family members of the four Marines who were killed in a training accident in uh, Northern Europe, and we, we pray for them as their weekends were just rocked with news of the passing of a loved one. And Father, in their lament and in the shock of their grief, we pray that you would be present through your spirit to give comfort and hope and life, even in the face of death. And so we just pray that you would pour out your grace um, on those who need it most this morning. You promised to be near the brokenhearted and to save the crushed in spirit. And Father, in the brokenness of our world, there is no shortage of brokenhearted and crushed people. So I pray that you would show yourself to be near and to be rescuing and that your grace would, would pour out. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, John 17. We've been out this long enough now. Um, most of you probably could get up here and comfortably rehearse the theme of John with us. And I think most of you could get up here and comfortably walk us through one of John's chapters. I really believe that. So our theme in John has been, or our theme, I would say the theme of John would be 
All right, there we go, Jesus's life. And just to show you that we're not making that up or that like, hey, it's a sermon, it needs a theme. Uh, let, me, let me show you, you don't even have to hunt for it. You probably heard it read uh, already this morning when Grant read scripture for us. Look at verse three, look at this. Here's the theme. Jesus said, and this is what? Eternal life. So if you grew up in the church world, you kind of probably think of the word eternal in terms of just time. And while there is a time component, obviously, to the word eternal, there's also a quality component to you, if you will, to it. In other words, eternal life is life as God intended. It is it is beauty restored from the brokenness. It is reconciliation with the God who created us. It is justice and peace and mercy and kindness, okay? eternal life. So in this is that life that we were created for, that we know you, the only true God, so that's God the Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So quite literally, Life is found in knowing Father and Son. Now, that word know does not refer to intellectual knowledge alone, though you need some knowledge. It's not academic. It's not found in a book. Know here is relational intimacy. So you want to know life? You need to be reconciled to the God who created you, your Father, through Jesus the Son and have robust, growing, intimate relationship with both of them. So that's a good word before we even really get into the heart of this chapter and the sermon this morning. Uh, maybe this is all you need to hear this morning because we have feet that run after finding life in so many different places and people and things other than God. So maybe that's your career. Maybe it's a promotion. Maybe it's your reputation at work. Maybe it's um, your work as a teacher, maybe it's your reputation in the neighborhood, uh, body image, relational status, whatever it might be. And Jesus is kindly looking you in the eye this morning and speaking into your ear and reminding you that life, purpose, meaning, identity are not ultimately found in any of those people, places, or things. They are found alone, life is found in relationship with the Father and relationship with the Son. Jesus literally is life, right? Good word for us to get started in John 17. But I wanna ask you a question as we get into the heart of the chapter and kind of the theme of this entire chapter, and that is this. If Jesus was going to pray for you by name before your life began, what do you think he would have prayed for you specifically? So maybe get out a piece of paper, get out a pen, jot down some words, maybe a list of three or four things. Uh, you've got your phone open, swipe away from the app that you're currently engaged in, open up your notepad and type in a couple, couple words. What would Jesus pray for you by name? What would he pray? What do you think? Now, before we start to answer that question, some of you, the skeptics in our room, are like, well, I don't even know if Jesus would have prayed for me by name, so I don't know that your question's valid, John. Like, I know you just work one day a week, but what'd you do the other six days this week? Um, let me just convince you, and then we'll begin to answer the question of what Jesus would have prayed for you. Look at verse 9. Jesus said, I am praying for them. We're like, see, John, it says them, not me. 
It says them, not you. And, and you would do your little work in the, your, not little, I'm sorry, that was rude. You would do, we would do our work in the text and find out that them here refers to the original followers. So all those, not just the 12, but the growing gang of people, the growing family of people, men and women and kids around Jesus. And he's praying. So you're like, John, see, he's, he's not praying for me. He's praying for them right here. All right, fair. I'll give, I'll, I'll concede point, but drop with me to verse 20. Check this out. Jesus says, praying still to, to the father, I do not ask or pray for these back to the them only but also for those who will what? All right. Believe in me through their word. So if you have believed in Jesus as your rescuing king through their word, in other words, the gospel handed down from generation to generation, both orally and through the written word, if you have also come to believe in Jesus, he has prayed for you by name, before you took your first breath popping out of your mama's womb. He's already prayed for you. So yes, Jesus has prayed for me, and he has prayed for you. So now the, the question is, what, what did he pray? What did he pray? Uh, prematurely. Before we answer that again, let me just show you something. I want you to see the posture of Jesus. I want you to see his heart, and I want you to see the heart of the Father in this prayer. Look with me, if you will, at verse six. Jesus says this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So that sounds a little impersonal, impersonal right there, right? Jesus is like, hey, I've, I've made your name known. Manifest means to make known or to display, to make clear. And so we read that and we're like, well, to the people. It just kind of sounds impersonal, but, but keep trucking. Jesus says, uh, you gave these people to me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now uh, float down the page a little bit. Now look at this. Verse 9, verse 10, Jesus says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now look at verse 10. This is great. We all have this conversation. with. with it depends what your relational uh, status is, but look at this, verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine. This is the only time in all of human history those words are written with integrity. We joke about those words in our relationships and jokingly you have said before, well, what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine, right? Like that's generally, if we don't say it, that's what we're thinking. This is the only relationship, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, where those words have been spoken, and they're actually 100% true and beautifully true. What's all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So for posture, I just want to show this to you. Guys, Jesus' posture in this prayer, the way he's speaking about us as people is deeply personal and it's highly loyal, and it's family language. Notice in, back to verse six, he said, your people, right? All through scripture, your people were words to communicate when talking about God, God's family. And, and very often we would see words like covenant coming alongside those, those words, your people. The point is 
This is deeply personal language where Jesus is saying or acknowledging out loud, Father, I'm praying for your sons and your daughters. And he's giving uh, a head nod or acknowledgement to the Father's loyalty to his people. These are your deeply loved, forever kept sons and daughters. And so as we begin, I want you to see the posture of Jesus toward you as he's speaking to the Father on your behalf. And speaking of father and family language, Jesus doubles down on this. Let me show you. Did you, did you notice, like did you hear how many times Jesus referred to God as father? Look at this, verse one. It's at least five times. Verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. Now, hey, speaking of posture, let me, let me show this to you. You did see that, right? Parents, verse one. So he's praying. When Jesus spoke in these words, he what? Closed his eyes and folded his hands. Where, can I get a Bible verse on that other posture we enforce like strict disciplinarians around the table? Um, Man, I remember growing up and like it was wartime, there was always an eyeball police with, among the kids. I'm not talking about my parents, but like just waiting to tattle. Like, hey, John prayed with his eyes open over supper, right? Did you know this was Jesus' posture? Hands lifted up, eyes to the heaven. They would have been open. They would have been open. So families, have a little fun. Um, not to stir the pot for you, but maybe this would be an alternative and maybe actually you could, not just an alternative, maybe you could, we're all about mimicking Jesus, right? So maybe at our next meal, uh, we lift our hands, lift our eyes to the heavens and pray collectively looking at each other and looking to the Father. So posture. All right, but back to the Father theme. Check this out. Verse one, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Verse five, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them. Verse 21, Jesus prays that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. And verse 25, O righteous Father. Okay? So Jesus' prayer begins with an appeal to dad, to father. It closes with a reminder, I'm talking to you as my father, and all throughout, family, father, language. That's meaningful for a couple reasons. It's meaningful because Jesus is not praying this prayer in isolation. Did you notice kind of the transition from chapter 16 to uh, chapter 17? It says in verse one, Jesus, when Jesus had spoken these words, so he just finished talking to his followers, and he just transitions right into this prayer. So he's not praying in isolation. He's praying over them and for them. He wants them to hear again and again your first orientation or the way that you relate to God is as Father. Now, let me just say this. Uh, let's acknowledge this. In the brokenness of our world, for many of us, that is not an appealing invitation. For many of us, there may be a lot of insecurity about 
relating to God as father. There may be animosity. There may be fear. There may be anger. There may be inability. I didn't have a relationship with my dad. I don't know how, right? So our relationship with our fathers shapes radically the way that we view God as a good father or a bad father, a distant father, an unpredictable father, a safe father, an unsafe father, loving, kind, angry, loud, quiet, all the things. And the brokenness of our experience, rather than being a life-giving invitation for us, for some of us in this room, this can serve as a roadblock to our relationship with the Father. So it's good for us to be able to acknowledge that out loud. But I also want to show you, now let me show you one thing and encourage one thing. Check this out in Romans 8. Romans 8. Verse 14 says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons or daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear as it relates to your relationship with God the Father, but you have received the spirit of adoption as what? Sons and daughters by whom we cry, dad. Abba's a very intimate way to speak to a father. Daddy, dad. Okay, so here's the good news of the gospel, guys. Some of us find it very difficult to relate to God as good father, faithful father. Religion would say, you figure it out, you fix your heart, you relate to God this way. The good news of the gospel says, the father anticipated the radical brokenness of our world, and he knew how profoundly absent, angry, apathetic, or abusive fathers would shape the way that people would, would, would find their own relationship with God profoundly affected. And in that anticipation, he sends the spirit into our hearts who teaches our hearts and even speaks on our behalf to learn how to call out to God as father and to trust him as Good. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are kids of God. The good news of the gospel is you don't have to fix your heart. The good news of the gospel is the Father sends the Spirit to slowly renew and restore so that you can be rightly related to God as Father in a life giving way. Now, for those of us who may struggle with that relationship, maybe what we could do is look to Jesus, look at all the ways in the gospels that he relates to the Father, the way he speaks to the Father, prays to the Father, submits to the Father, loves the Father, and just lives rehearsing the love of the Father for him, right? We see it everywhere. And then we can identify the ways uh, that our lives do not align with how Jesus relates to the Father. Well, I'm different here, I'm different there, I'm different here, and these gaps are not life-giving. So Father, please, through the work of your spirit, close those gaps, restore and renew my heart, and allow me to relate to you as a good, kind, faithful father, and follow the example of Jesus as he himself relates to the father. He is, if you will, our pathway back to restored relationship with our father. Okay, so I want you to see a little bit of posture. This is a prayer that is born out of a gentle, 
kind, empathetic, loving, loyal heart, an older brother and rescuing king, praying for his younger brothers and sisters in the family, praying to a father who is deeply loyal to every son and daughter in the family. Now that we've established that foundation, let's answer the question, how would Jesus pray for us specifically by name? And the good news is we don't have to guess. It's very, you've, we've already heard it read. It's very explicit here in John 17, very specific. Uh, but here's where we may have some disagreement. We may disagree. I see two primary ways, and then there are probably a lot of implications or secondary tertiary ways flowing out of those two. Here are the two that I see, and I'll show them to you in the text. Forever kept and forged in unity. We've already established that Jesus has prayed for us by name. Very specifically, he prays, Father, keep John forever. Keep Darren forever. Keep Scarlett forever. Keep Ethan and Lauren forever. Keep them, protect them, keep them in your family, okay? He prays that, and then he also prays, may they be one as a family. Forge them together in a unity that they are not able to cultivate on their own. Let me show you where I see those. Uh, the first, first place I want to show you is uh, from John 17, 11 to 13. Jesus said this, praise this. I am no longer in the world. Now he's getting ready to go, right? He's right before the cross. Father, I'm on the way home, but our, your kids, my younger brothers and sisters in the family, they are remaining here in the world. I'm coming to you. So, Holy Father, please keep them, each one of them, every one of them, in your name. So keep them according to your character. Keep them in the family name might be a good way to say it. Like, keep them in the family. Keep them in the family. Uh, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Okay, so there are the two big aims in Jesus' prayer. Keep them forever and forge them in unity. Verse 12, I like this. I really like this a lot. Jesus says, so here's our older brother in rescuing King Jesus. He says to his father, Dad, while I was with them, your people, your kids, I kept them in your name. I did it. I did the work. I kept every one of them. I protected them, I kept them in the family, every one that you gave to me, I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. It's very important for us to hear that. Not one of them has been lost. That's what he's now praying back to the Father. Father, not one is lost, ever. But then he continues, uh, except one, one had been lost, the son of destruction. We met him a couple weeks ago. We know him by name, that's Judas. And Judas was lost that the scripture might be fulfilled. He was not an authentic son from the beginning. And so it was in fulfillment of scripture. So that's an important thing for us to see because just as it was fulfillment of scripture, what's scripture, by the way? What is scripture? What is scripture? God's word, voice breathed out that we have here. So according to God, word. It was a fulfillment that Judas was going to walk away. He was not part of the family. He was going to betray Jesus. Just as that was a fulfillment of the Father's word, guess what the flip side of that is for fulfillment? The flip side of, of that fulfillment is the fulfillment of God's voice that he will not lose. 
one son or one daughter ever, according to scripture. He doesn't lose kids. I've lost kids <laughs> temporarily. The father never loses kids. I have a good aquarium story to tell you later, but not, not now. We don't have time. Ever. Notice what he says in verse 13. Now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Guys, this should be a profound source of joy for us. And here's how. For so many of us, especially if you grew up in a religious environment, you have come to believe that your place in the family is dependent upon your ability to keep the happy, to do good things, to earn your place, to prove your worth. You gotta do it. You gotta persevere. You gotta pull it off. You gotta make it happen. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what he's praying. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Without saying it, it's the acknowledgement that none of us are capable of keeping ourselves in the family. And it's the acknowledgement that so often throughout life, our little feet run away from the Father instead of toward the Father. Jesus knows this about us. And so he prays, Dad, in the same way that I have guarded, protected, and kept every single one, and not one was lost in my absence now, please keep every son in this room and every daughter in this room, protect them from running away themselves, protect them from the evil one and bring them all the way home. Like, man, I don't know. Uh, is that acknowledged anywhere else in scripture? What, what, like, does that happen? Let me just show you, let me show you this. Jude 1.1, uh, one, one, well, it's one chapter anyway, Jude 1. Listen to how Jude opens his letter. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now he addresses the letter to those who are called, beloved, or deeply loved in God the Father. And what's the verb there? Kept, kept for Jesus in fulfillment of Jesus' prayer to the Father. Father, keep your kids. Here's Jude writing, a piece of scripture saying, to the ones being kept by the Father on behalf of Jesus. He keeps his word. He is a loyal, good Father. Now, we need to say this, though, because the text takes us in this direction. You are kept sons and daughters, but you are not coddled sons and daughters. The Father is a keeping Father. He's not a coddling Father. Let me show you this. Verse 14, Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Uh, we looked at that last week and, and a little bit the week before. Uh, that's been a, a recurring theme lately. Um, just as I am not of the world. Remember, they, they, they hated Jesus first, right? They hate the Father first. It's not about you. Verse 15, I do not ask that you... Look at this. I don't ask that you take them out of the, the, the workplace where, where they will face opposition. I do not ask you to give them a better neighborhood where everybody will approve of their allegiance to Jesus. I don't ask that you'll give them the perfect set of PCS orders where they will be surrounded by endless affirmation for their love of you, Father. I don't ask that you take them out of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the broken workplace or the broken neighborhood. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one while they're in that place. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We are a sent people. You are a kept people, kept sons and daughters. 
but in our Father's keeping, he's not coddling, he's sending. And sometimes we look at our environment or the places we end up, the opposition we face, and we're like, man, God really slipped up on this one. No, he didn't slip up. He sent out. He sent you there on purpose, on purpose. Well, what was that purpose, right? If, if Jesus says to his father, dad, I'm sending them out in the same way or for the same reason that you sent me out, check this out. We, we don't even have to guess at what that means. All we have to do is look back in John 17, verse four. Look at what Jesus says. Father, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So why was Jesus sent? Jesus sent, was sent with work. What was that work? To point the attention of people back to the goodness, kindness, justice, mercy of the Father um, to point their attention back. So, so what is our work in being sent? Our work in being sent to the the, the dead-end, dusty dirt road, the darkest corners that we could possibly go, our work, wherever it is that we find ourselves, is to point the attention of people who don't yet know the Father back to their Creator, their God, their Father, and speak well of His kindness and His mercy and His justice and His love and His forgiveness and His compassion. Same work that Jesus had. Look at verse six. Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. We have the same purpose. We exist to manifest our father's family name, to make clear, to talk about, to display, to portray the beauty of our father. That's our work. Because that's why the father sends us where we go. So listen, there's a problem though. Some of us in this room are superstitious about where we live and where we work and how we get to those places. And many of you are not superstitious, but most of you are at least stitious. You're, 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 we, we get weird, like for example, if I was meant to be here, it wouldn't be like this. Like doors would open. People would bow down at my feet and work. No, we don't get that extreme. But you know what I'm saying, right? Like, if I was really meant to be here, like, things would be going well. This, this is not going well. Clearly, I'm not meant to be here. Guys, we need to take all of that superstition and all of that stition and put it in the pipe of John 17 and smoke it and burn it out. Listen, we talk about deconstruction, reconstruction all the time. Some, some of you are uncomfortable with that. Some of you are like, yeah, let's talk about deconstruction. Here's the bottom line. We all need to deconstruct any way in which our Christianity has been formed um, and it does not align with Jesus and the gospel as it's revealed here. That's got to be deconstructed. This is one real area of our lives. It's got to be radically deconstructed, reoriented on Jesus and built back up. Jesus sends you out like the father sent the son. And where did he send the son? Into a broken, dark world. So where do we think we are going to be sent? And why do we think we're going to be sent there? So the next time you get PCS orders, though from your perspective it might be a mistake, it's not a mistake from the father's perspective. 
he is sending you with a, to a specific place for specific people who, there, who are there who do, do not yet know the Father the way that you do, and your purpose for existing there is the same as we saw for Jesus at the beginning of this chapter, to do good work that will point people back to the loving kindness and the mercy of their creator who can be their father through Jesus and to make the family name manifest or made clear or beautifully displayed in a broken world. So guys, counter to what we have been taught and what the culture would tell us, while you are a kept son or daughter, you are not a coddled son or daughter, and the Father is going to send you to hard places where you may very well be rejected, you may be scorned, you may be hated. In fact, the very reason you might be there are for the people who are actively scorning you or rejecting the gospel. In between services, somebody came up to me and told me of a story where they had been overseas in a country that most of you do not have access to, uh, there was a, a, a person in that country who worked for them and then also happened to work for another Christian. And it wasn't until later, it wasn't until this couple, this guy who talked to me in between services, left that country and the other guy got back to him and he's like, yo, this person's been asking questions about Christianity. She's like, your life is different and your life is different in the same way. Like there's a commonality and it's beautiful. What is it? But they weren't there in that season for the, the seed of the gospel to grow into the eyesight of faith. So listen, the hard place that you may be going may be hard the entire time you're there, and you may be rejected the entire time you're there, and it's not failure. It's not failure. The Father sends us into hard places to love people, sow seeds of the gospel, and in his time, he does the work in people's heart and wakes them up to the beauty of the gospel and adopts them into our family. Okay, so kept, not coddled. Kept, not coddled. But he's keeping you. If you have believed the gospel, son, listen, daughter, listen, the father is bringing you all the way home. He doesn't ever lose kids or give kids away. Though some of you sometimes feel that way about, right? He, the father never feels that way, ever. Okay, we got to press. Unity, forged in unity. We see that in verse 11. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Crazy statement. Jesus is asking that the same unity that is present among Father, Son, and Spirit be present and reflected in the life of our family. Perfect unity. Now we should say, Unity is not uniformity, right? Because there is one God expressed in three distinct persons, and they are, while they are sameness, there's, there are key differences between Father, Son, and Spirit. So in our family, there should be, different, there should be a difference on every level. When the gospel is really going to work, uh, a sign of or a fruit of gospel work would be an increasingly diverse family. Socially, politically, economically, uh, ethnically, racially, all, all the things. And in our environment, service branches and rank structure and an enlisted and officer, all the things diverse with one thing in common. 
God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the good news of the gospel, our family identity and the good news of the gospel. It's also in verse 21, Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Now, here's the, here's the reason why our unity as a family matters so much, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Guys, the way in which people here in Okinawa will respond to the gospel will be in part due to the visible evidence of unity in God's family or the visible absence of unity in God's family. That's what Jesus just said, and that's how much it matters. Now, briefly, this chapter gives us three key ingredients or elements of unity. If one of these is missing, it's not unity that we're looking at, okay? And unity just doesn't appear out of nowhere. It's not magic. It's the fruit of, I believe deeply from this passage, these three key pieces being in place. And here they are. Uh, they are truth, glory, and love, okay? All true unity, well, I can't use true in the definition, all authentic unity, any real unity will be grounded in truth. We see that in verse 17. Jesus says, sanctify them, Father. So this is praying. So sanctify is, Dad, please take your family. Sanctify means set apart. I want you, please set them apart um, with this family name and for this purpose and for this identity. And then he prays how that would happen. Sanctify them in what? The truth. And what's truth? Your word is truth, Okay. So the good news of the gospel, the apostolic faith, if you will, as it's been handed down from generation to generation from Jesus through the apostles, through scriptures, truth is the starting point for all authentic unity. You can't have unity in the absence of truth. And our generation has a really funky relationship with the truth, thinking we define truth, we discover truth, we have our own truth. We uh, we, we all need counselors for our relationship with truth. We'll just put it that way. Um, truth is received, and truth is authoritative over us. We're not authoritative over truth. Truth matters. In the absence of truth, there is no real unity. However, because truth matters so much, so often in Christian circles, truth becomes the one singular litmus test or means of unity. And in that environment, the culture is cold and calculating and domineering and oppressive and angry and hostile. And everybody outside of us is an enemy. Truth is not enough. And that's why Jesus would say of glory, verse 20, where do we go? 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. And then another purpose statement. That's what the word that is for. Why did Jesus share that glory with us? That they may be one, even as we are one. Truth is insufficient. It's got to be coupled with glory. So what's glory? Glory is, and on one hand, glory would be like speaking well of our father. He's way up here. He's he is uh, holy and different and above us. So that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about speaking of ourselves in that way or that the Father would. But glory is also beauty. 
It's life. It's weightiness. It's the weightiness of something. And so Jesus is saying, I have poured out this glory into my family so that they have a sense of the weightiness and the beauty of life restored, right? So truth, but also glory, meaning that collectively together, we have a sense of the weightiness of the thing that we have been invited to. The, the, the magnificence or the beauty of our father and the beauty of his family so that we understand that this thing called church, this family is way bigger than us and not about our preferences and not about our individualistic expressions. There is a weightiness about this thing and there's a beauty to it. So weighty and so beautiful that it's worth our effort to guard it and to contribute to its life and to put my preferences aside for the good of other people in the family and for the collective beauty and life of the family, okay? So if there's going to be unity, truth is our foundation, but you've got to pour in the glory, the beauty, the life, and there's another element, the love. We see that at the end of the chapter. Verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Do you see that? Jesus just said, Father, you love your kids in the same way and just as much as you love me. Did you know that? If you have believed the gospel and been adopted into the family, God the Father loves you to the same extent that he loves Jesus, God the Son. And if he loves you to the same extent, it means also, listen, because some of us are real shaky about this in our place in the family, and am I going to make it? It's not just the way in which he loves us, it's the enduring nature of his love. The father will never stop loving the son. That's really good news for you, because if you're loved by the father, just like he loved Jesus, the father is never going to stop loving you all the way home. That's really good news for us. And now look at what he says in verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So we want unity. Foundation is truth. Maybe the mortar around those bricks of truth would be the glory, the beauty, the majesty, the life-giving, the weightiness to it all. And then maybe the rebar running through all that bricks and mortar that brings it all together is love. And love shapes our posture. Love cultivates a beauty in our culture that makes it attractive to those not yet in the family. Unity absent love gives a projection to those who are not yet in God's family that we are better, that we know better, that we're better people that they are inferior and we are superior. In fact, that's why we're in the family, because we're good people. That we are condemning, that we have judgment to bring. Love softens the posture. Love brings us as a family to a place of gentleness and humility and open-handedness and pursuit and kindness and winsomeness and great care when we post on social media about the culture or people who are not yet Christians because we care deeply about how people outside the family think of God and think of the gospel and think of his family, that weightiness thing. So if we're gonna know unity family, it's not magical and it doesn't happen because we sing a song as good as the songs are that we're singing. It happens when submit ourselves to our father's revealed truth. We have a sense of the weightiness of belonging to him and to his family. 
And love is shaping the way that we interact with each other and especially the way that we posture ourselves with kindness and humility to those not yet adopted in the family, that we would leave these doors as a family of servant missionaries, not just missionaries, but servant missionaries. We exist here in Okinawa to serve the people with kindness and love who are not yet adopted in. That's when unity is found. I need to stop talking. Somebody's going to come and lead us in communion. As they come, I'd just like there to be 30 seconds of silence for us to sit. Let's ask the Father. Father, as a son or a daughter, am I right now living into the reality of what Jesus has prayed for me? Is my confidence in you keeping me, not in me keeping myself? But maybe just as importantly or more importantly, Father, am I living in such a way that I am contributing to the unity of your family? And if not, please show me. Let's just pray, family, and listen to the voice of the Father through the Spirit. And let's humbly respond however he would lead us to respond. <laughs>